0: At one point, the lead guide took a step forward, and for the next 30 feet in front of him, where there used to be normal snow, there was now this huge gaping hole dropping into a crevasse that was 200 feet deep. And that crevasse was probably a mile wide from one end to the other. So you you think of being out there in the middle of that, and then that thing collapsing and pulling the whole rope team down, that got our attention.
1: This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 TAC. Get out there and have some fun.
2: Episode 161, Climbing Denali with Mike Fenner. Hi, and welcome back to another Adventure Sports Podcast episode. This is your host, Travis. Now, a few of you have written in to us and said, Hey, we want to hear from some more mountain climbers, some high altitude climbers. So, I got a good guest on for you today. Uh, his name is Mike Fenner, and Mike has a really good, inspiring story about finding himself, you know, kind of in midlife and looking in the mirror and realizing that he might not have done the things that he dreamed about doing when he was a A younger man. So I think we can all relate to to that to some extent. So I've got Mike on here to tell his story about what happened and what he's done with it. It's a pretty amazing story. He's got a book out, which I'm uh, probably a third of the way through and really enjoying it and having a hard time putting it down. So I hope you guys enjoy Mike's story as much as I have been. Mike, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks very much for having me, Travis.
2: It's great to have you. So let's dive in. I found you. I had a uh, actually had a hard time tracking you down, but I'm glad I did because once I got to to talking with you and got my hands on your book, um, I was telling you before the the interview that I really really enjoy uh, people that can write and tell stories and put me in the place you know that they're experiencing. And your book is, has definitely done that. Um, let's jump in a little bit in uh, from the beginning and. Tell people a little bit about your background, who you are, and how it is you found yourself uh, starting to to climb such high mountains.
0: Well, um, first of all, I'm not a mountaineer. I mm-hmm. have climbed mountains, but uh, what I do for my job is I'm a general surgeon in central Illinois, and I've been practicing surgery for about 25 years now, and what got me interested was about the um, time that I turned 40, which would be 15 years ago. Um, I started thinking that it was time to branch out and do something a little bit different, not just stay in the operating room all day and not just do the home duties, but to kind of branch out there and see what else uh, I could do as far as a life adventure. Um, First of all, I think I've always been interested in the outdoors. Specifically mountains. My parents took me out to Rocky Mountain National Park when I was a youngster. And they weren't the most active people, but they encouraged me to appreciate my surroundings and certainly the beauty of the Rocky Mountains and the activities that you could do out there, um, inspired me to have dreams, dreams that took a while to fulfill because first I had to go to medical school and residency and build a practice so by the time i was 40 years old it seemed like half of my life was finished but it was uh, about time to start reliving and exploring some of those exciting things that i enjoyed doing as a child so um what i thought i would do as um my first step would would be sort of um Combine an adventure with a mountaineering experience, and I made plans to go to the Kumbu region in Nepal and spent 25 days trekking and camping amongst the Himalayas. But um, the problem was that was just two months after 9-11, so the plans that I had in place were kind of up in the air wasn't sure that I was going to be able to make the trip. Things calmed down, fortunately, over the next several weeks. And in November of 2001, I went and trekked to the base of Mount Everest and looked up in the glory of the um, surrounding mountains and was truly inspired. So beyond that, there was a couple of other um, episodes where I was able to get out in the mountains. Um, Colorado was one, and up in uh, Washington State, my wife and I actually – took a mountaineering course spent five days with a rainier mountaineering expedition doing a climb of mount rainier so that was really my introduction to true mountaineering five days on a mountain making sequential camps expedition style working our way up the mountain
2: so the, your first endeavor was to go out and go up to the, the base of Everest. Where? What kind of altitude are we talking out there?
0: Um, base camp's at approximately 18,000 feet. So it's,
2: Okay, that's what I thought. That's, that's a pretty, uh, it's pretty ambitious, I should say. <laughs> Most people start out with smaller mountains, maybe knock out a 14 or two. You know, you did go over and do, do Rainier, but that's a, I understand Rainier's a pretty tough
0: climb. Yeah, it's uh, the biggest glaciated mountain outside... Alaska in the United States, um, and it's a challenging climb, but lots of people do it every summer.
2: Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that um, first. The the trek up to Everest. Um, I, I've I've spoken to some people about it, but I don't know that I've I've gotten enough detail about it. I I sit here and I read and I, I imagine and wonder what it's like. Can you go into a little bit of detail what it's like uh, going up to the base camp of Everest?
0: Right. Um, well, it's it's a progressive. Hike it starts at about 9,000 feet. You fly into a small hamlet called Lukla. And it's the feeder village into the Khumbu region of Nepal. Um, small population, 5,000 people. Huge geography, um, not only vertically, but also it's it's just spread out just hundreds of square miles. So you, you follow up these... Uh, river valleys up into sequentially higher and higher uh, plateaus until you reach what is the um, highest that a person can get in the area without actually doing some serious climbing. So probably about 18,000 feet before you start actually having to scale mountains.
2: Yeah, that's up there. And even at 18,000 feet, you're still dealing with uh, oxygen uh, depletion. I mean, you do it fourteen thousand feet, a little bit, but I can imagine you're still another fourteen thousand feet higher, or four thousand feet higher than that. That's uh that's getting up there. Yeah.
0: So not only uh, was it a, a beautiful experience, but it's it's a very spiritual place to visit um, with the Buddhism of the Sherpa people and the just the religious insights that a person is opened up to during that that kind of a uh, a travel. It's uh, really just a very, very calming spiritual experience, but you throw that in with some really serious hard work, a lot of sweating, huffing, and puffing, getting up these peaks, and uh, it really makes for quite an adventure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would love to do that someday. What kind of uh, training and preparation for uh, an expedition, expedition like that would somebody expect to have to go through? Where where would somebody feel comfortable taking it on?
0: Yeah. Actually, I was doing quite a bit of running back then. My wife and I got into long distance running. I was trained for marathons. So putting in 20, 25 miles a week, something that I would have a difficult time doing at this stage in my life, but it was pretty active and I got myself in pretty good shape. But that's at sea level or five or 600 feet here in Illinois. It's a different story when you start going up to altitude. So with the altitude part, you really have to acclimatize as you go, get into mountain strength and getting used to the thin air while you're there on site.
2: Right. So I want to point out that part of your struggle was you were a a avid smoker and found yourself a little overweight before doing all of this. So this wasn't like you were just you know, Mr. Fitness and decided, hey, I'm going to go do some mountain climbing. You had to do some, you had to kick those, you know, that habit and get over the weight issue first, right? That's right.
0: Um, Yeah, it it took a few years to get through all of that. Um, The stresses of all my training and surgery and the work that I did there, long hours, it made it pretty easy to to just kind of except the fact that it wasn't in very good shape. And I certainly agree, the doctor wasn't very good at taking care of himself. So you realize you <laughs> have to just sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and say, I'm going to make my life a little bit better and take care of some issues that I've got health-wise. And it does make a difference.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you've managed to do that. If we have listeners and I'm sure we do, um we, a bunch of us find ourselves in that same boat and we can relate to it. What were what would some words of advice be for these people since you've been you've managed to do it yourself. In hindsight, what would you tell others?
0: Yeah. Um I think everybody has to find a way to do it. Quitting smoking is probably the hardest thing I've ever done. And um it's not so much a physical addiction it's a mental addiction you feel like you need to have those things so what the way I did it um I just decided I was going to change gears and just made a concerted effort at doing that and it took several tries but it finally paid off um I th- I think a, a goal oriented attitude is really important you have to have something that you're striving for that if you get rid of this, you'll be able to do that. So, um, you yeah, know, it's it's just one of those things that everybody has to find their own way, but uh, a goal, something to look forward to in the future, I think is extremely important.
2: Do you think it needs to be such a, a large goal as hiking to the base camp of Everest or climbing Denali, or do you think people can accomplish this with, with smaller goals? I mean, I'm not a smoker, never have been, but I understand the addiction is pretty rough. I mean, for you to say... I mean, it was the hardest thing you've ever done in your life, and you've been up to the base camp of Everest, and you've been to the top of Denali. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty bold statement.
0: Yeah. Um, no, I, I I think you're right. You don't have to have such lofty goals, um, but something where if if you do kick this habit, you get yourself in shape, that you can find yourself being more active. You can participate more with family and just activities on a day-to-day basis. It, it doesn't have to be something quite so dramatic.
2: Right, right. So in comparison, Mount Rainier, we spoke about it a little bit. It sounds like your, your wife does some hiking or climbing with you, and she was on Rainier with you. What is uh, – tell us about Rainier itself. Fill us in a little bit on the detail of that mountain.
0: Sure. Um, it's uh, probably about uh, 75 miles away from Seattle, so a person would fly to Seattle and then hop in a car and drive a couple of hours south and a little bit east down to Mount Rainier National Park. Um, it's fourteen thousand hundred and some feet tall, not quite as tall as the tallest 14ers in Colorado, but uh, the difference is that it's heavily glaciated and it's volcanic. So there's a series of volcanoes that run up the west coast, including Mount St. Helens, which we all know exploded back in 1980. Um so Mount Hood, Mount Jefferson in Oregon. Um, but Rainier's the biggest. And there are several ways to get up Rainier, and one way would just be to uh take it on by yourself, but my wife and I were not mountaineers and we were wanting to learn the ropes, so to speak. So we signed up with Rainier Mountaineering, and they run programs all throughout the summer. Uh three-day climbs are the typical. We wanted to do a little bit more time on the mountain, so we didn't just rush to the summit and come back down again. So we started at the base camp, which would be 7,000 feet, um, and progressively, over the next five days, worked our way up to the top of the summit and back down again to the the base camp. Um, It's almost entirely snow. There's a little bit of rock that you start off with on the first day. That almost everything above 8,000 feet is snow. So there's crampon work um, going up snow slopes, probably 25 to 35 degrees on the, the standard route. Um, there's crevasse risk. There's rock fall risk. People do get into trouble on the mountain with various kinds of falls and um, dangers that are around but uh it's it's a good experience for someone who's a novice. I would think that that would be the the place that someone who wants to go further and do things in Alaska would probably be best off starting uh w- with their career
2: okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How would you? How would you compare Rainier and its technical difficulty to something like Denali? Obviously, you're on Denali for a much longer period of time, and I imagine the weather risks are are far greater. But as far as the actual climbing goes, how would they compare?
0: Um, The the biggest part of the climb on Denali, at least getting up to about 14,000 feet, is very similar to Rainier. Um, It's just bigger. You're carrying more gear. Um, instead of a 60 pound pack, we were carrying 80 pound packs, and then pulling another 25 pounds on a sled behind us. <clears throat> but, um, what you experienced for the first few days on Denali is actually pretty similar. The difference is, and as the guide who encouraged me to go on and, and climb Denali, uh, he was m- one of our guides on Rainier and his name is Mike Hamill. Um, he said that it's a very similar experience. You're just on Denali for much longer and the real climbing on Denali just starts at the summit height of Rainier. So you got another six. hours. <laughs> That's pretty impressive.
2: Degrees. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. The gear is, is what's been baffling me, uh, reading your book and you know, the book, I don't know if I mentioned it, it's crossing Denali An ordinary man's adventure atop North America. Um, the as you guys go through all your 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 kid out and your prep for this and talking about bringing the sleds and you guys went up over Denali and then down the other side. So you had to take even more food with you because you couldn't stage it anywhere. And when you're talking about those pack sizes, I thought, holy cow, I don't want to go backpacking on flat ground <laughs> with that kind of weight. I just can't imagine you guys up there with crampons and the weather and the the heavier clothes carrying that stuff. It's insane. Yeah.
0: Uh, the pack weight is, you know, every bit of seventy-five to eighty pounds. And the the thing that makes it tolerable though is instead of going from camp one to camp two with everything that you have, there are, um, um a, it's a split climb where you take half your gear the first time, and then the second climb you take everything in your tent and pack it up and move up to camp two. So you really end up only having to to carry about maybe 60 to 65 pounds on that first day, maybe a little bit more on the second day because you're carrying some of your gear back and forth on on both climbs. So it makes it tolerable. Uh, The downside, of course, is you end up climbing the mountain twice because you're going from Camp 1 to Camp 2 twice. Um, So, yeah, but I, I think probably the single biggest physical difficulty involved in climbing denali is just managing those huge amounts of weight
2: right yeah and trying not to eat it all so you can (laughs) lighten your weight
0: (laughs) one of the guys actually did that his idea was eat all my king size snicker bars on the way up store all those calories around his belly in some fat and have to carry less weight around
2: I, <laughs> I, re- I read that, but I haven't gotten to the end. So did it work for him? Um, I
0: think we were burning that stuff so quickly. It probably didn't have a chance to turn into fat.
2: Oh, man. <laughs> a, a snicker
0: bar weight to carry.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be worth hanging on to it, I guess.
1: Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and splitboarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2. Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment including the latest skis, boots, splitboards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check BentGate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events.
2: Action cameras evolved quickly and are no longer just for recording your adventures. The new SciOI Iris 4G shares experiences as they happen. The connected camera is built specifically for action sports. It's rugged, wearable, and goes places you won't take your smartphone. The best part? Broadcast from the great outdoors with a simple touch. Your friends can watch live or come back for an instant replay. No downloads, no editing, now that's progress. Visit sioeye.com and share your next adventure live. Let's talk about guides. Um, Again, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, as we as we do, we hear stories and read books, we put ourselves in those shoes. So I guess one of the things I craved a little bit more information on is kind of how you get into hiring a guide, uh, what goes into the prep hiring some cost, uh, give people an idea of what it is they would be in for if they wanted to try something like Rainier, you know, with a guide if they were, they were not uh confident enough to to go up there and attempt it themselves, they have a crew to take them, so what can they expect
0: no yeah. um well the, the group that I used was r m i Rainier Mountaineering incorporated, and they have a website and they will explain to you all the different routes that they'll take um what the equipment needs are, basically take you from start to finish um do everything except the actual work for you um so taking a guide on the climb. Does several things for you i I think first and foremost we used our guides as route finders and as um, safety nets Um, the the main dangers associated with these types of expeditions are altitude of course but also just the physical dangers the crevasses the rock falls uh, getting yourself lost finding yourself on the edge of a precipice and not being able to get yourself up or down and that's what the guides really offered myself and the group that I went with. So all that extra support. But what they don't do is they don't offer to carry your weight on their backs for you. They're carrying their own stuff. They're doing their own camp setup. You're, you're putting up your own tent and taking care of your gear yourself. So um, in in some sense, it's, it's almost like they're um, your parents and they're kind of guiding you through this. But on the other hand, they're, they're strict parents and saying, I'm going to help you, but I'm not going to do all your work for you. So uh, definitely, if if you're a novice like I was, getting with a guide or someone who really knows the ropes real well, I think is absolutely essential. So from a cost standpoint, I don't know what the cost is for doing what I did on Rainier. It's probably going to be several hundred dollars. Uh, for the five-day trip, it might be over a thousand dollars. Um, to do Denali, I think, is somewhere in the round in the in the range of five or six thousand dollars for the three week trip now, so not cheap, but I think worth every penny.
2: Within reach, yeah. I I wondered because I I had seen some or read some things on Everest, and I think people were raising thirty forty thousand dollars to do a an Everest expedition. Is that about right? Yeah,
0: I think it's probably somewhere between sixty and eighty thousand dollars for a guided. Uh, Everest wow. climb right now, yeah.
2: Now, now again, you have Sherpas, and you have a lot going on, and you know, instead of just uh, a team on a rope, you have a lot of people porting your your gear for you and setting up, and obviously uh, setting up mess for you.
0: Absolutely, and and that's uh, probably a two month, sixty uh, day trip as opposed to twenty one to thirty days like Denali would be.
2: Right, and typically a heck of a lot farther away for for most of us than, than Denali or here <laughs> would
0: be. Now, one
2: of, the, he's, one of the things you said in the book where uh, you had uh, uh, really appreciated your meals being prepped for you out there, and I, you know, I thought, I didn't, I didn't think much of that, but having somebody out there to take care of that for you while you're exerting this energy and out in these conditions that you're not used to, uh, it probably is a, a major benefit.
0: It is. Um, <clears throat> if you spend somewhere between six and eight hours climbing 3,000 feet, um expending a lot of calories, ending up dehydrated at the end of the day, having someone back in base camp who's going to fire up the stove, start melting snow for water, and uh getting the water boiling for some tea and eventually ramen noodles. I think that was a huge part of what the guides did for us. Right. Very right. much appreciated that.
2: <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> Especially the, the the further you go up the mountain. So let's get into denali i want to dig deeper into this one Um, denali is not one i know much about and i'm kind of embarrassed to admit but when you in the beginning of the book explained the the naming difference between mckinley and denali i had no idea of that whole history of it so can you dig into that a little bit and explain to to people how that all came about
0: yeah and it's even gotten more complicated as of last year so um, mount mckinley it was named after president mckinley he wasn't president at the time it was while he was a um uh running for president must have been sometime early nineteen hundreds I don't know the exact date um and that moniker stuck for a number of years um but the Athabascan name Denali, which is the traditional name, just means the high one um that's always been the preferred name at least among the Alaskans and the wilderness zone around mount mckinley reverted back to denali national park and reserve but the mountain itself has always been referred to as mckinley but up until that is up until last year when uh, by presidential mandate it was uh, changed back to its original name denali so um both names are appropriate i think denali is one that's preferred um by local people and and people who have some experience with it.
2: Okay. I like that name better anyway, personally. (laughs) So Denali, uh, highest peak in North America at 20,310 from what I found. Um, That is ambitious. What kicked you off? What started or sparked your your interest in conquering that one? Um,
0: Just like when I started off running, and start off only being able to do two or three miles at a time but eventually your ambition makes you push for a 5k run and then maybe a 10k run then a half marathon and then a full marathon there's always something bigger to reach for so i think that's part of it um yeah but there's also just this um enamored state associated with alaska and Just thinking about going to Alaska and and seeing not only what it's like up there, but to see the very best of Alaska. And when you think of the best, you think of the tallest and the biggest and um, just things that would make your ordinary life seem um, very different indeed. So, um, So I think just striving for something bigger pushed me to go to Denali. The fact that it was achievable, I thought that 20,000 feet is certainly less than Everest at 29,000 feet. Um, I never really pictured that I would actually try to climb Everest, although Al Hancock that you mentioned earlier has actually been to the top of Everest twice. He's one of my temp mates on Denali. So he's gone on to these bigger things. Um, but I, I thought Denali was probably as tall a mountain as I was gonna have a, a chance to climb. So, again, the ambition in me said, if we do this Denali climb, what's the best version of that climb that I can do that's offered through the guide service? And it just so happened that Mike Hamill, who was my guide on Rainier, said that um, what he suggested I consider was to do a traverse of the mountain. So you go up one route, you come down the other side, so you get to see two sides of the mountain, twice as much experience, twice the adventure
2: yeah that it is I mean this is we're talking a massive mountain here, so <laughs> you know in order to to plan on doing that i mean you're you're talking about a serious amount of time. How long were you up there?
0: Um, we were on the mountain for twenty five days, so just to put it in perspective if if you start off where we dropped where the plane drops us off on the glacier, which is just outside the wilderness boundary um that's at seven thousand feet on the south side to the top of the mountain, and then back down the other side to where we walked out at Wonder Lake on the north side of the mountain, that was a 50-mile walk. So even without going from 7,000 feet to 20,000 feet and back down again, it's still 50 miles uh, in in length. So um, all that carrying those monster packs that we were talking about.
2: Yeah, yeah. That just, I'm, I'm awestruck. You know, just thinking about that. Like I said, I, I,
0: I wouldn't want to do it on flat ground. You know, <laughs> much
2: less uh, carrying the, the stuff you wear with the, uh, with the gear that you had on. Yeah.
0: And don't forget, there are bears on the north side when we walked out too. You walk across 18 miles of tundra, so we had bear spray. We had a little bit of protection against those massive critters. Just fortunately, we didn't run into them.
2: <laughs> well, safety in numbers, right? <laughs> So, um, so Denali highs and lows, um, everybody likes to hear good stories and we all like to be teased with, a, a, some of the bad stories of things that didn't go right. So highs, let's start about, start with that. What are some of the, the good stories of things you experienced up there?
0: Yeah. Um, well, the highs definitely involved the first part of the climb. The first couple of days we got there. Uh, we flew from Talkeetna, which is a small village sixty miles away from the base camp. But um in you know, a little plane that carries four people and your gear in the back. Um, it's it's the kind of thing that you can do just going there as as a visitor. You can do a flight scene tour of Denali and see what it looks like up close and personal. But uh they dropped us through this long valley where the Keholpna Glacier drains off the mountain. And set us down at 7,000 feet, <clears throat> just outside the wilderness boundary, um, at, at base camp. And then you get off the get out of the plane, and you get the buzzing sound away from your ears for 10 or 15 minutes. And then you open up and listen, and it's absolutely deadly quiet. Um, not a sound, not anything except for the sound of your breathing and for uh, the sound of the wind as it rustles through. It's uh, just absolutely spectacularly quiet and the sun shining on the surrounding mountain tops. You're in, inside this cathedral with uh, fluted ice pillars coming up in all directions all around you. So uh, just the imma- immense space that you find yourself in,
1: yeah. um,
0: just several square miles of pure, Wilderness, um, so it's it's absolutely dramatic when you first land there on the mountain. Um, so I, I would say that the first day and the first couple hours were one of the highlights of the first few days that we were there on the mountain. Um, working our way up on the south side, it's a lot of hard work. So you struggle under the packs. You spend a lot of time, um, sort of cursing and and swearing about uh, how difficult it is, but Then you learn before too long that the place that you're in is such a magical place that you shouldn't spend any of your energy trying to curse your situation. You should just feel how blessed you are to be in in such a, a wonderful environment. So that's when the spiritual side really starts opening up and you realize that this is a place that you likely won't have a chance to visit too often in your life and should take advantage of every second of it. So the spiritual things are are some of the highlights that I have, not only of McKinley, but in Nepal and on Rainier as well.
2: Yeah, I'll bet in that moment you're thinking, well, if there's anything that I pay attention to in life and, and recall, this better be the one, you know.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, You learn something about who you are and what your expectations are for the future. Um, but so much of it is just living in the moment. Um, you You spend a lot of time just... Enjoying every breathful of crisp mountain air, um, every chance that you have to spend time with your tent mates and just talking about things and enjoying life. Now, there aren't a lot of other expectations. You're supposed to take care of your job, which is to keep yourself safe, move yourself in a uh, timely fashion up the mountain, take good care of yourself and make sure that your friends are also safe. Um, so it relieves you a lot of the burdens that you have in everyday life down here in the lower forty eight
2: yeah, it gives you that one soul focus yeah when you're exerting so much energy and you're up in those elements um you know one of the things that can be difficult is you focus so much on your exertion of energy and what what it is you're doing, those little minute steps and the pain you know and the and what you're dealing with, so how was it to? Be able to take in your surroundings and where it was, the big picture of where you were uh, in the middle of all that, because it's obviously a difficult climb. So I keep thinking, well, I would find myself, you know, just focused on what I'm doing and forget to look around. Yeah,
0: and that's the danger. You do spend a lot of time looking down at your feet. Um, The pack is pushing you down. Um, You're keeping an eye on the ground in front of you, making sure you're not stepping on something, especially the rope. Um, there's a climbing rope that attaches three or four of us together. So if somebody does drop in the crevasse, the rope will catch you, keep you from falling all the way to the bottom. So if you step on that with your crampons, it's going to cut into that rope and maybe that thing's not going to be able to save you when you need it most. So you do spend a lot of time looking down. Um, But there are rest breaks every hour. We would sit and drink our water and have a snack, uh, get a chance to catch up. So you'd look up and check out your surroundings and see how much things had changed since the last time you had bothered to to look up. Um, But the big picture is you have a goal. You want to get to the top. You want to complete the climb. You want to do it successfully. You want to keep from getting frostbite or other kinds of injuries. So these big goals, I think, are what keeps you on track and focused.
2: Right. Yeah, I can imagine well if i ever get a chance to do it i'm going to i'm going to cherish those breaks every hour just to look around cuz i know i'm the guy that's just saying don't step on the rope don't step on the rope please don't step on the rope <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the book a little bit uh crossing denali is the book um you chose to write about denali and uh not the other climbs uh obviously it was more impactful it was you were up there for a, a much longer time uh, the book just came out early this year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, tell people a little bit about what the story is you're you're telling
0: yeah, in the book. I'd love to. Um, you're right. It, it just came out in February of this year, 2016. Uh, it's published by Mountaineers Books in Seattle. Um, it's available through Mountaineers Books' website. Uh, there's a nice uh, picture gallery there. Uh, it's also on Amazon. Um, hope to be getting it into other bookstores uh, locally here over the next couple of months, and um, if I'm lucky, uh, it'll be widely available in other bookstores. Um, so the the story, the thing I struggled with when I came back, Travis, was just trying to tell my friends, my family, my coworkers what this experience was like, and not everybody will agree to sit down. Like you have for an hour and ask ask all these questions and listen to my uh, long answers. Just you know, a few seconds waiting for an elevator, saying, "Hey, what'd you do this summer?" Well, I climbed Mount McKinley. Oh, that was nice. But I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> run a case, I'll catch up with you later. <laughs> Wait, wait! I have more to tell you. <laughs> it really was cool. <laughs> so, um, but you know, part of the reason was I really felt that we had a good story and just. The adventure itself, the climb, the fact that we did something a little different by coming down the north side, um, the personalities of the climbing mates that went up and down with me, just terrific people. And it, I think it just makes for a good story. I think a lot of people are going to enjoy this because they can relate to what I was going through in, in certain ways. I mean, most of us are not professional mountaineers, but a lot of us do like to read an adventure story. Um, I like reading stories about astronauts in space and I like uh, different kinds of sports stories and that kind of thing. I'm not an athlete, I'm not an astronaut, but you can appreciate things because those are normal people too that just had a chance to do an extraordinary thing. And climbing Mount McKinley and doing a traverse and seeing two sides of one of America's most wonderful mountains was uh, a life-changing experience. So... And, well, we haven't talked at all about yet, Travis, but um, after we went to the summit, it took us 16 days to go to the top, and that's the first half of the book, and the second half of the book is when things start getting pretty interesting, and um, it's pretty pretty (laughs) dicey over there. Uh, that's the part I
2: haven't gotten to yet. So I'm, uh, I, I hate to ask the questions, but I'm going to because I haven't gotten to that point in the book. So I don't want to ruin it for myself. But at the same time, uh, yeah, we got to know, of course. So yeah. what did the backside look like?
0: Well, it's, it's just a totally different animal. Um, instead of a well groomed trail that had already been laid out, uh, because we weren't the first ones on the mountain that year. Um, basically you know where to go. You know what areas to avoid because the trail shows you. Where you're supposed to be to stay safe Um, on the north side, there is no trail. Uh, As soon as we stepped off the saddle between the north and south summits, uh, and once started going down the Harper Glacier on the north side, there was no trail. There was no indication of where the hidden crevasses were, and it really didn't take too long before some of us started plunging a foot or an ankle or even a whole leg down into a crevasse that, that was hidden underneath completely normal looking snow so we still got our uh, two or three we still have our two rope groups uh we were uh, seven people at that time so there's three people on one rope and four people on the other so we're still attached by the rope and there's some security there but uh, at one point the lead guide took a step forward and for the next 30 feet in front of him where there used to be normal snow, there was now this huge gaping hole dropping into a crevasse that was 200 feet deep. And that crevasse was probably a mile wide from one end to the other. So wow! you, you think of being out there in the middle of that and then that thing collapsing and pulling the whole rope team down, that got our attention. So
2: yeah, that's to put it lightly. You know, I've been in bad situations back in the national forest, you know, <laughs> but I'm just thinking, wow, you know, as bad as I thought it was back then, you know, something like this story just puts it all into perspective because this is a serious, serious situation you find yourself in.
0: That's right. So uh, you start wondering what your next step is going to lead to. So naturally we all developed a certain amount of paranoia, um, this down trip was supposed to be maybe two or three days. Um, our lead guide had done the trip a couple of years before that, and they had very good snow conditions. And they got down in, I think, 48 hours from 18,000 feet. So we thought, well, just one more day and we're going to be there. But three days had gone by, five days had gone by. And then on the sixth day, we're still in no sight to uh, n- there's no sight of the end and we're still on the Muldrow Glacier at about eight or nine thousand feet. And I tell you, things started getting really bad. Um, guys were dropping in to crevasses 30 feet down on, on the, the slender rope that's connecting us together, taking an hour, sometimes more to extricate them and bring them back up to the surface. And, uh, you know, just look at each other and you think, who's going to be next?
2: Yeah, right. This is like Russian roulette at this point. It
0: is. And I think that's very uh a very good way to describe it. I'm just not sure if everybody's going to make it out okay. Um I mean if for example someone breaks their leg, falls in a crevasse and hits a rock on the way down or uh twists an ankle or wrenches a knee, um there's no planes overhead, there's no way to call for help, we didn't have a satellite phone. So you're really trusting these tremendously talented guides to take care of us, um, but it's not just the the climb the uh, clients that are falling in the crevasses. Our lead guides also fell in their own crevasses. So,
2: yeah, it's one thing if a client goes, but when the guide goes, you got a real issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> House of Motorad is Colorado's original adventure motorcycle rental company. Located in beautiful Boulder, Colorado at the base of the Rocky Mountains, House of Motorad is the perfect place to start your next motorcycle adventure. Visit www.houseofmotorad.com to check out their top-of-the-line fleet of adventure motorcycles from BMW, KTM, Triumph, and Yamaha. Make them your first stop on your adventure of a lifetime. You can also give them a call at 720-466-0047. That's House of Motorad at HouseofMotorrad.com. Your adventure is ready and waiting for you. Hey folks, be sure to swing by 180tac.com to check out the 180 stove and the 180 flame camp stoves. These lightweight, compact, multi-fuel stoves are made in the USA and are designed to be fail-proof on your adventure. These stoves offer the flexibility to cook your meal using twigs and sticks found around you or various other fuels like gel fuel, alcohol, charcoal, or even use them as a windbreak and stable cooking surface for remote bottle gas stoves. The ingenious locking tab and slot design ensures your stove is very solid and stable without the use of hinges, rivets, or fasteners that can fail you in the field. Visit 180-T-A-C-K dot com to find your next camp stove. You guys were not on, like you said, you were not on the well-traveled route. You had done that coming up the front side, the south side. But once you dropped over the back, you were the only ones back there, yeah. I assume.
0: Yeah, we were the only seven people that we saw on the entire north side.
2: Wow. So did any did anybody suffer injuries doing this? Imagine the a fall on a rope like that. I mean, you can, not only the guy going into the crevasse, but one of the team being caught up in the, the rope to arrest him. That's right. You know, there, how did everybody come out of that? Well,
0: everybody came out okay. Um, some short, sore shoulders from banging into the crevasse walls, uh, we lost some equipment because you know snowshoes fall off or you lose track of your snow poles and that kind of thing. But for all the times that we dropped in these dangerous crevasses, no one had a serious injury, so truly blessed.
2: Well, that's good yeah that's a that's a scary time. So you finally do make it out at some point. What's that look like? You said you dealt with uh, tundra and bears, and eventually you got to some area where you could catch a ride, and were probably quite relieved at that point.
0: Yeah. Uh, once we got down to about seven thousand feet, which is the same altitude that we started out on the nor- on the south side, uh, you- there's a gap in the mountain called McGonagall Pass, which allows you to exit the glacier and then go down a long snow slope, which eventually turns into uh, a rushing stream and and uh, uh, vegetated valley, and then down onto the tundra itself. So after we left the, the glacier, we still had about 18 miles to walk. So we had one more campsite on the tundra before we got off at the end of the next day.
2: So, I'll bet it's got to be an amazing feeling to to finally get back into vegetation after spending that many days up on the on the ice face of of Denali, yeah,
0: you're right, Travis. um I just remember a couple of things. It was two o'clock in the morning when we stepped off the glacier for the last time, so it was kind of twilight conditions, a little darker than twilight we, we never had to use headlamps because this is the middle of the summer up in Alaska so uh, we're almost getting up to the, the summer solstice by the time we step off the glacier. So it's 24 hours of light. But I looked down at my feet, and I saw this black thing just kind of darting around and and not making a sound. But I was trying to figure out if my eyes were playing tricks on me. And I, I figured out it's a bug. It's a bee. And there's little twigs of uh, vegetation down there, too. The first green things that we saw in 24 days. <laughs> that's the better. best sight ever
2: <laughs> it's like it's like when we get out of winter you know a hard winter with all the snow and, and ice and cold and we see the first flowers poking through that's it's right. it's the best thing at that time but what you just explained you know magnifies that by many 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 times
0: <laughs> so the last big obstacle that we had to uh, conquer before we got off the tundra is the mckinley river and it's it's one of these braided rivers that's in Alaska. In other words, there's not just a single channel like the Mississippi or the Illinois River or uh, the Platte River, that kind of thing. So it's not a single broad river that you have to get across, but there are several channels and they're braided. And some of them are easy to get across. Some of them are difficult to to get across. Uh, And one of my most embarrassing moments was just taking one step that I shouldn't have taken on a slippery rock and then I found myself down in the water. My pack was being submerged. I was getting ready to ditch my pack and, and release it to go down the the river so that I could get myself out of there. Unfortunately the lead guide reached down and grabbed me and pulled me over the shore, got me up and and uh you know saved saved me from losing everything that I had, including my photos that I'd taken over the past three weeks. So, oh man! The only thing I lost was my glasses, and I didn't have them attached to a lanyard. And he looks down at me and says, "Why the hell didn't you have your glasses on a lanyard?" <laughs> <It's> a <technical laughs> after saving my life, but I you know <laughs> my glasses can be replaced. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, there's a there's bigger worries on that at this point. So that was were you just about out of it at that point? Because that's some pretty frigid water.
0: Yeah, we were just about to soak all of your stuff. You know, so it just meant. Uh, wet clothes to carry in my pack instead of dry clothes. So what's 10 more pounds? Yeah. So all that food you
2: <laughs> ate coming down and gave up the weight. Now you just gained it back in wet weight. That's great.
0: <laughs> so we we're just about out. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think all told, uh, there were two of us that had major falls off of the, a, a, a ridge. Myself and Al were the two people that, that had a major fall. We were caught by our teammates holding onto our rope. Um, <laughs> So it was those were hair raising experiences. And then all of us except for Bruce, one of the, the clients, took a major crevasse fall on the way down too. So really. Plus my dousing in the river. So that was sort of the last straw. It was it was definitely time to pack up and go home.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> Call it quits, quit while your head. Well, I was gonna commend you for not falling in a crevasse, but apparently you you checked that one off too. Yeah.
0: So uh, <laughs> But uh, I I think it was my hour and a half that I spent in the crevasse that was probably the defining moments of my entire trip on the the mountain. So just having that time to contemplate what you're there for, whether you would do that again under the same circumstances. And, you know, for the first time in my life, really not knowing for sure with certainty that I was going to be around the next day. And being able to get back to my family again. So, um, yeah, you, you spent a lot of time just soul searching and, and trying to come up with answers to those things. And I don't have answers to all of them even now. But wow, would I exchange the experience for, uh, you know, staying at home and being safe and never having had that opportunity? I, I sure, sure wouldn't. Um, it's a part of who I am now and it's a part of who I'll always be. Um, it's, it's, you know, by the grace of God that I got off that mountain in one piece and that all of us didn't have more problems than we did, but it's an experience that was truly life, um, changing and one of the most challenging things that I will ever do. And I'm certainly glad that I had the experience.
2: Yeah, no doubt. Well, you can, uh, you can strive to protect your life all throughout life, but if you do that, you, you probably will never live in doing so. So I think that goes without saying, you know, people, you talk to people all the time and they experience things like that, you know, and you're thinking, well, that must've just, you know, cinched it for you. You're, you're done doing this kind of stuff. And they said, no, you know, that's, that's, that's why I'm out there is to live. And yes, I'm taking that risk, but at the same time I feel alive when I'm doing it, you know, that's right. like,
0: I can get it. Well put.
2: Yep. So what's on the horizon? Um, Is Angie going to do anything with you? Do you have any uh, plans to to do any more expeditions like this? Or what are your thoughts?
0: Um, It's hard to say. Um, In the years after I went to Denali, I did uh, go to South America and climbed Aconcagua. um, Actually, twice. And did that in 2006. I think 2006 and 2008. Okay. So one of the climbers in my tent... Rick Barr, who is um, still one of my good friends, uh, he went with me, and our guide was Mike Hamill once again. So that's even a little bit taller than Mount no, uh, McKinley. So 22,840 feet for Aconcagua. But it's, it's just a different experience. It's not glaciated to the extent that Denali is. Um, but, you know, Aconcagua is a good experience. You to check out Mendoza and Argentina and uh, my. It's only trips to South America so far, but lots of other places to explore, Travis. So I'm not sure all of them are going to involve mountaineering, but lots of other places.
2: Oh, the list is long once you get the taste. Yes. I, I can relate to that for sure. That's the problem with doing this podcast is my, my list of you know things to check off is just obviously way too long. <laughs> More, It's longer than I'll ever have a, a shot at. But if you don't strive to uh, at least check a few of them off, then what's the point, right? That's right. <laughs> very cool well the book is crossing denali again by michael fenner and uh it is a great book i'm about a third of the way through it and I have a hard time putting it down before uh shutting my eyes at night i look forward to to getting to the end and it sounds like uh i'm not even even to the good parts yet where uh, things get extra exciting i know you tease in the front of the book about the Jack's crevasse fall, right. and, you know, I'm kind of reading, 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 hoping to, you know, trying to get to that point. But, uh, but you gave us a good t- taster. I imagine there's a, a ton in there that, uh, that we left out as well. And that's a good thing. So yeah. I, uh, I hope people will uh, go check out the book. We put all of our, uh, authors books on our website uh, and links to Amazon. So you can easily go into our bookshelf and find them there, but, uh, go find Mike's story. Uh, we didn't, Cover your website. So let's uh, let's give the listeners your website where they can go find out a little bit more about you.
0: Sure. Um, right now, it's it's something that's still in the process of of being fine tuned. But if you go to crossingdenali.com, that will send you to um, a picture gallery it has some a few of the nice pictures that I took uh, on both sides of the mountain. Uh, hopefully, over the next couple weeks here, when I gain access. To being able to control that a little bit better, I can add some stories and more insight. Uh, the pictures are terrific. I, I just uh, i am so proud of some of the pictures and, and the terrain that's so vividly portrayed in them. So you, you don't have to be a good photographer. You just point and shoot, and it's just amazing stuff. So please, if you get a chance, uh, go to crossingdenali.com and keep in touch with that site over the next few weeks. And we'll try to get something um a little bit more uh, appealing.
2: Well, yeah, I took a, a quick peek at it, and there's definitely uh, definitely some eye candy there. And it's so easy to get lost in in some of these photos from these adventures. Uh, you can just you can easily blow some some precious time away by by living vicariously through photos of adventures like you. So I appreciate you putting it up there and directing us to it for sure. All right, Mike. Well, it's been great hearing your stories. And uh, once again, another inspirational uh, interview. I love these types where, uh, you know, like you said, it's the everyday guy getting out there and doing something very cool. And we can all uh, we can all get in tune with that and, uh, and want to get out there and try something similar. So thank you for spending your time on the show.
0: Thanks very much, Travis. It was a lot of fun. All
2: right. You take care. A big thanks to all of you who joined us on Friday night for the meetup with Pete Schuster and the Continental Divide Trail presentation. If you didn't get a chance to join us or watch on online, uh, you can go ahead and check out that blog post on our site, adventuresportspodcast.com, and you can watch the video there. We had a little bit of a Wi-Fi issue, so part of that video is broken up. But you get most of it, and you get the gist of it, and hopefully you can learn a few things about the CDT if you're interested. Now get out there, have some fun, and we'll see you on the next episode.